IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums and we hash out trends. In this episode we induct four new albums into our IndieCast Hall of Fame. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I assume he has already pre-ordered my book about Pearl Jam, due out in September. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I, I just first got to say, you fucked up big time by not releasing this in a, a in a 10-style CD long box. I mean, that's just... Not my call. Not my call, my friend. Yeah. If it had been my call. <laughs> uh, I mean, come on. You know that I would be doing the CD yeah. only edition. Like, I... I, I <laughs> I, I think that audiobooks are still put out on CD huh. in some area. Because I think that for one of my books, there was a CD version wow. of the audiobook, which makes me feel like I should have bought that <laughs> uh, myself. But but maybe I can push the publisher, let's put it out on CD, the audio version for all the CD heads out there <laughs> who are going to want to listen to it. Or just like a pop-up, like a pop-up store, like a pop-up Sam Goody where there's like the... Uh, the audio, like the little audiobook section next to the musical instruments that they would sell, like sometimes in Sam Goody. Like we need to like, re- actually no, like no, because I, I'm pretty sure this book doesn't just like talk about Pearl Jam, like 1991 Pearl Jam. It's about kind of the long view of uh, yeah, Dan, it's right? about the entire career. And I should say, I, I don't want to uh, beat this dead horse too much, at least not yet, because this book isn't coming yeah. up for another Let, six let's months. Pace our, sure. Let's pace ourselves here. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be plugging it a lot on this podcast, but my book, it's called Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. It comes out in September. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover was unveiled this week, and I and I started doing the official pre-order push. And I'll just say quick that I know it sounds weird to order a book six months before it comes out, but pre-orders do help help authors. A lot of times if a book has some buzz early on, more bookstores are more apt to carry it. More people are apt to cover it. It just helps build momentum. So if you feel like plotting out your fall reading schedule here in early spring, please order the book. That's all I'm going to say for now because we have lots of other trends to hash out. Yeah. This, this isn't – we don't say plugging product in our <laughs> intro. We say hashing out trends, reviewing music. Um, so I feel like we should talk about the Dolly Parton story this week. The funny thing about like mentioning your book at, at off the top is that like that's like actual news. That is a that that is a that is a piece of media that is coming out and people are excited about it. Whereas the Dolly Parton thing, we are transitioning to the part of the episode where we talk about like real nothing burger stories that have popped up because South by Southwest is bring brought us back to normal where mid March is a complete dead zone for actual uh media and so it's a good point because there were a bunch of stories that seem sort of made up this week people making up something to get mad about i mean the dolly parton story for those who don't know dolly parton she released a statement this week saying that uh she is not accepting her uh she was nominated to be considered for the rock and roll hall of fame uh this year uh people are voting right now so she hasn't been voted in yet. I would have predicted that she would have been voted in yeah. if she had decided to keep herself in consideration. But she said, don't vote for me. Um, I don't make rock music. 
so I don't think I should be voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, I think that's cool. Like, if she doesn't want to do it, good for her. I mean, anything Dolly Parton does, I feel like people are on board with. Yeah. She has tons of goodwill at this point. Uh, but this uh, launched a slew of think pieces and tweets about whether this damages the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and whether it should be renamed. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's a conversation that's gone on for a long time about, because people like Dolly Parton, people in, in hip hop or in jazz, you know, artists who are not strictly rock have been voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm. And that bothers some people. Yeah, I guess. Uh, that bothers people out there in the discourse well, as, community. Well, as a voter for the rock, you're you're a voter, right? Like this is. I am a voter. Yeah. So th- does th- does this bother you? <laughs> no, you know. So the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was started in the mid '80s. Obviously, rock and roll had a much different place in the culture at that time. I think the idea, as the museum evolved, was to define rock and roll in the broadest possible terms. So. Not only are you going to induct rock people, you're also going to induct artists who are adjacent to rock, maybe artists who have influenced people in the rock genre but aren't necessarily making rock music. Um, And I happen to endorse that point of view. I think it should be broad because I think once you start defining something as broad as rock and roll music is anyway, it starts to get a little dicey. And I I, I tend to be... I like the inclusive route versus the exclusive route. Um, And I think you could have made a case for Dolly Parton being an influence on certainly singer-songwriters in rock music, Mm. even though maybe she hasn't made a rock record. Um, But I don't know. I mean, how how do you feel? I mean, Because you have no opinions about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I I have, like, I I think so little about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, like, you know, not to – that's not meant as a personal slight, but, you know – I, I just think this story is funny because it, it views the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as this, like, vital organ of pop culture as opposed to, like, quite literally, like, a museum in Cleveland, Ohio. No offense to Cleveland, Ohio, but, um, like, it's a building. It is notoriously impervious to any sort of trends, like, less so than even the Grammys. Um, I, I just, like, this is actually the second funniest Dolly Parton story of recent times. The first is that uh, I think she went on Twitter or like some interview and debunked the myth that she wrote Jolene and I will always love you on the same day. And yes, that was a great Eric Alper yeah, died. I think <laughs> that everyone made the same exact, yo, we need to check on Eric Alper joke, which it's like one of those like beautiful moments where like Twitter is all dunking on the same person. Um, but like if Dolly Parton takes herself out of consideration, like this is what it would be interesting to me. I think back, like it was only four months ago that, um, like college football teams and bowl games would, you know, say like, Hey, we got some COVID shit going on. We're going to take ourselves out of it. And then there were like these teams that were like five and seven that would volunteer to play in the bowl game, you know, like a Rutgers or like a Western Michigan, if Dolly Parton takes herself out of the running, like, does this mean like another band can like will will get on the ballot as like a replacement? Like, I would love to see everyone like praising Dolly Parton for her magnum. I, I can't even say magnanimity or whatever, but like this <laughs> the the selfless act. Like, if Scorpions got on or something like that. Well, it is interesting to consider out of the you know body of nominees, like who will get voted up now. Mm. 
now that Dolly Parton is out of the running. Like maybe there would have been someone who was close, mm. but if Dolly was in there, they wouldn't have gotten enough votes to to be uh, inducted. Because mm. you know, someone's going to benefit from the Dolly bump from her taking herself out of consideration. Because again, I think she was to me like the obvious slam dunk. Yeah, that, that's like Mariana Rivera type ninety nine percent. Because like I mean, the w- this story is not so much about like Dolly Parton as it is about the way your average rock and roll hall of fame voter slash like music critics talks about this person now. Right. Yeah. I, I think that, I mean, obviously Dolly Parton's had a great career. I think she can get in on the merits, but she is one of those artists that people feel good about, uh, boosting. Yeah. And, and we talk about this on the show. There's, there's, there's people that seem to have a lot of goodwill and they can do things that maybe another person who doesn't have as much goodwill, if they did the exact same thing, They'd be criticized. Yeah. Uh, I think the Mitski Jack White conversation about phones is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Like where Mitski, I think, got a lot of praise for her stance on phones, whereas Jack White just seems like people dunk on him whenever he talks about phones. Um, the thing with Dolly Parton is, and if you want to make a case against this, like against her going in the Hall of Fame, I don't think it's about her being country. It's about her coming out of the '60s and '70s, which is how. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they still have a bias in that direction where they're still looking to that generation uh, to, you know, look for nominees, which is how you end up with people like Steve Miller Band (laughs) in the Hall of Fame, which, you know, I like Steve Miller Band okay, but I don't necessarily think of them as like an essential act. Dude, you're like, are you sure you want to go down that road? Like, you know, as a Wisconsinite, like... Well, I think he was born in Wisconsin. I don't Him know if he and Bob Skaggs there. were in the same fraternity together. At, at the uh, is, is that right? I believe that's the case, yes. <laughs> and I think Skaggs is in, too. Yeah. I think he's in the Hall of Fame. So you have, you know, artists that I think are maybe like third or fourth tier in the 60s and 70s getting consideration. Yeah. Meanwhile, artists in the 80s and 90s, they're still way behind on recognizing those artists. I mean, basically most of the great punk, indie rock, and metal bands from that era have not been inducted. And we're talking about like obvious things or things that would seem obvious. You know, the replacements, Husker Du, the Smiths, the Pixies, Sonic uh-huh. Youth, Soundgarden, Alice in Chains. Uh, you know, the Rage Against the Machine is still not in. They're nominated this year, uh-huh. uh, but... I think Tom Morello really needs to be out in the public discourse more. I don't think he's doing enough to put himself in rocket. He's like second to Dave Grohl as far as like being a spokesperson for real rock, man. That's that's just wild to me. And he's on the nominating committee and he still can't get in. So I don't know. Morello, man, he's dude. he's turning into like the Beto O'Rourke of the Rock and Roll <laughs> Hall of Fame. Like where Beto just keeps running and he can't get in. I think uh, Be- Beto would love eventually. that comparison. I'm sure Morello would yeah. too. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Like we, we got to get into e- an even more like nothing story to the point where like even both artists have talked about, yeah, this is nothing. Um, the, the, the machine gun Kelly versus Japanese breakfast, like yeah. quote unquote feud. I love this one. This was something that came up in Rolling Stone Yeah, because uh, machine gun Kelly released the album cover for its upcoming record called Mainstream Sellout, mm. which, by the way, are we going to cover that album? I feel like that is might it, be fun Is to it talk out? About. Is it all right? Like, when does it come? Like, I, 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 it's out in April, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? Like, I, we've said this on a previous episode that his uh, Tickets to My Downfall, his previous album, is one of the most important 
uh, rock albums of the past several years. If you look at like the longitudinal trends and particularly with like pop punk making a comeback and Machine Gun Kelly elevating himself from like a bottom of the poster, like beefing with Eminem, but not really type dude to a like a mega celebrity. That is an important album. Therefore, as a hasher out of trends, we got to cover the machine. Unless, unless like something more, unless an album we actually like comes out. <laughs> well, you know, who knows? That album might be good, yeah. but we'll, we'll, I don't know. We'll e- have to wait the and returns see. are promising from Emo Girl and like the one he did with Lil Wayne. <laughs> well, the controversy, yes. which we haven't gotten to yet, because, well, controversy in air quotes yeah. was uh, he released the album cover for Mainstream Sellout. It shows him on the cover being. There's tomatoes being thrown at him, mm. and uh, Rolling Stone decided that this cover, because of the floating tomatoes on the cover, yes. was too similar to the cover of Jubilee, the 2021 record by Japanese mm. Breakfast. Which had persimmons on the cover. Yes, persimmons on the cover, which are floating around her. They're not being thrown at her. It's this more sort of ethereal image mm-hmm. of her in a... Uh, area of floating persimmons. Yeah. Very underrated fruit, by the way. And whereas Machine Gun Kelly is being accosted by tomatoes yes. on his cover. There was about a controversy for about 15 minutes about whether Machine Gun Kelly had ripped off <laughs> Japanese Breakfast. I'm curious whether he had ever actually heard Japanese mm-hmm. Breakfast before this thing happened. I'm going to say uh, there's like a like one in 100 chance that he had actually heard Jubilee before this thing blew up. Yeah. Um, Maybe he was more of a little big league uh, fan, but no, he actually has heard right. it now. Uh, there was a tweet right. after the fact that he listened him and like Megan Fox listened to the album and they really like it. And, um, you know, like good for Japanese breakfast. It's good to see, you know, these undercovered, um, you know, obscure bands get finally get a bump after, uh, you know, being after toiling in obscurity. I'm, I'm joking, but like, yeah, Michelle, Michelle's honor. It's good for her to get some press. And of course they asked Michelle what she thought about this. And she <laughs> of course said, I don't think he's ripping me off. And she laughed it yeah. off, which was the right reaction. I mean, this reminded me a little bit of the Mitski Mac DeMarco oh. be the cowboy controversy of 2018. <laughs> that one of, one of my favorite, like w- one of my favorite non-stories like because this th- this would let because this suggested that, like mac demarco i don't know like pays attention to like the news or like anything beyond uh like what's going on in front of him that was like a that was like a in reality though that's like a, a real historical marker because mac demarco was like beloved and once that happened, like that kind of uh, set the course for Mac DeMarco to be like, not like pre-cancellation Ariel Pink, but like, you know, Mac DeMarco's stock has tanked in that time since. You think so? I mean, I still feel like there's a lot of people that are into DeMarco out there. He hasn't put out a record in a while. Was that his last record? Here Comes the Cowboy? You're going to have to ask somebody else. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's his most recent record. I would expect him maybe to announce an album for 2022 you might have gotten waylaid by the whole covid thing didn't want to put yeah, on record I suppose during so. the pandemic but yeah here here comes the cowboy came out in 2019 that oh my god that 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 can't possibly be true that feels like we're, we're in this like space where 2018 and 2019 feel like like way further in the past than 2012 yeah I, you know the the covid situation yeah. that just mess with everyone's sense of time because the rituals that we go through every year were put on hold yeah. for a while so i think we all lost track of 
where we were. Anything that and, anything that is like quote unquote Trump era, like that, like that, we're we're gonna need to do like probably in July because that's when there's usually like a week or two where no albums come out, where you have to like do a preemptive like like conceptual ten year anniversary for albums that came out in 2018. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I. I, I've been thinking lately about resistance era art oh, man. and like how that's going to age. And I, you know, cause people talk about the Obama era, like Obama era, cringe pop yeah. culture, you know, Hamilton parks and recreation, all that stuff. I think resistance era is going to, there's going to be some embarrassed people already. Yeah, It already seems embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but like in 10 years when they do the documentaries about how people responded, yeah, in art and, and in the media. Someone posted the other day some screenshots of reviews of the movie Joker. That was in 2019. Oh, where, yeah. where Where there was like all this fear that this movie was going to cause, uh, you know, an army of, of crazy... You are approaching a real off-ramp right here. <laughs> well, I mean, can we, can we say that the reaction to that movie was like, uh, like way over the yeah. Top. Like I mean, I understand where it was coming from. It was a weird time, but that's the kind of stuff that like right wingers would talk about in the nineties. Yeah, pop culture. You know, or, you know, playing video games or something would inspire violence, and now it's coming from the other side. I don't know. I'm just saying that those takes are not going to age well. I think people are going to look back on that and go, okay. Yeah, we. I think we already are. But like the Joker, for the most part, has like just inspired memes or whatever. In the same way, like Doom and Wolfenstein. Uh, in the 90s inspired, like, I don't know, samples on Smashing Pumpkins records, so. Yeah, Joker, to me, it 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 seems like the idea of it is so funny yeah. that I can't take it seriously. <laughs> I can't ever think of any moment where that movie seemed threatening yeah. because it just seems so transparently silly. Yeah. But anyway. Indie cast has been Joker-pilled. That is, that's the takeaway. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting to talk about Joker no. going into this uh, episode. Um you know what it seems even farther away oh, God. than 2018 or 2019? 2017. Oh. And that's the last time there was an Arcade Fire record. That can't possibly be true. Like, we talk about them on every other episode. Well, we're talking about them now because, uh, and we're going to miss this. It's gonna. This song is already going to be out by the time this posts, but they are debuting their new single Ooh. Thursday afternoon. So, again... Out in the indie community, don't you know that we record IndieCast Thursday morning? Yeah. If you're going to drop a single, drop it Thursday morning, or even better, Wednesday afternoon, so Ian and I can absorb it. You're missing the IndieCast bump by releasing your single after we record. Yeah, the IndieCast bump is real. Exactly. We, we're going to have to wait a whole week now before we could talk about this song. Yeah. If we even remember it. You know, we, we probably have forgotten it by then. I mean, you know, March 25th is our next show after this one. <laughs> That seems like, you know, Blade Runner, <laughs> you know, in the future. Although I, Blade Runner's in the past now compared to where we are. But. I don't know. The fact that, like, to this day, we can still, like, bring up deep cuts from everything now or, like, the last Muse album le- leads me to believe that, like, we are not at all done with whatever will come from the new Arcade Fire song. Um, are, are we at a point right now, though, where, like, people are maybe, like, kind of tired of picking on them and might be willing to, like, overrate them now? Well, I was going to ask you this. Like, are, are we on IndieCast? Are we cheering for the Arcade Fire album to be great or for it to be bad? Like, what is better for our show? Either. Like, if they make a comeback, or if we can 
take some shots at Arcade Fire. Okay, so I think here's my prediction. Like, and this is based on absolutely nothing. I've not heard the songs or anything like that. I get a feeling we are like headed to David Frick four and a half stars. Like Rolling Stone reviews this album four weeks ahead of everyone else, a la Reflector happening. I think that like the the lead single, I think people are ready to have a positive reaction if this song is any good at all. Um, I think that there's maybe like a resurgence of people caring about indie rock. And so like, this is like a real place to state stake one's claim. I'd love for it to be good. I'd rather have a good arc. I've had bad arcade fire albums and that was not pleasing at all. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm ready for a good one again. I think I'm with you because, um, you know, I don't have any good quips after the everything now, uh, album cycle. I mean, that really was, that really exhausted the supply of quips because there was a lot of, things to make fun of on that album cycle and uh yeah it would be great if you know we got animal collective back this yeah. year father john misty maybe people are ready to like you know he's coming yeah, back boy you know, what, a, got... what a repudiation of the uh of, of 2017 slash 18 of father john misty and arcade fire are all of a sudden like uh a-listers again well, I think Father John Misty is still an A-lister. I mean, I think they're both A-listers. Arcade I mean, Fire, in the sense I'm of, sure, like, narrative. I suppose. Yeah. But I don't know. Father John Misty, well, we'll talk about him in a few weeks. Yes. I'm, I'm excited to talk about Father John Misty. Uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to yeah. say. I'm excited to be mad about it. Let's get to our mailbag segment. And I uh, want, want to thank you all for writing in. Uh, you can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Uh, I should acknowledge that we got some placebo <laughs> blowback this How week. How much of it was from uh, the actual band placebo? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe placebo has some placebo heads that they've uh, weaponized against us. But uh, in our mailbag and also on Twitter, oh, Lord. heard from heard from some placebo supporters saying that we were uh, overly dismissive of the catalog. Um, I heard one person say that like the first four albums are worth listening to. I heard another person say that only the first record, which is before Without You, I'm Nothing. Yeah, the self-titled. Is the one. The self-titled. They were like, that's the real shit. Uh, I've heard so that I've one. heard various things. So various complaints out there in the placebo community. We're not going to read a letter from a placebo fan, but I just wanted to acknowledge we hear you. We, we, we've, we've received your feedback. We'll try to do better. Hashtag do better. Um, but uh, yeah, for now, I don't know. I guess we'll just say we're undecided on placebo. How about that? We'll be a little less definitive. Uh, I disagree. I'm very decided about placebo. <laughs> oh, I, I am too, yeah. but I was just trying to be magnanimous. Oh, man. You, uh, to our okay, audience. of all the words that you've like mispronounced in past episodes, you like nailed hey, magnanimous on the first try. Hey, man. I'm winning this episode. All right? I'm winning this episode. Don't bring up the past. Don't bring up the past. <laughs> It's all about Don't the bring present. up the past. Let's uh, talk about placebo albums from 1998. Do you want to read our yeah, uh, listener question? I feel like this one's kind of aimed at, aimed in our direction. So uh, this comes from Tyler from Seattle, Washington. Uh, pretty big Pearl Jam town. Um, my question oh, yeah. revolves around brackets. It's almost time for bracket season, a.k.a. that's happening today, uh, where every publication creates March Madness-style brackets for all sorts of pop culture ephemera. So I wanted to ask you to give me the number one seeds for a bracket we would fill out for the most on-brand IndieCast bands. 
just like March Madness, there will be four number one seeds. And feel free to mix in as many college basketball references as possible. Uh, I am. I have no knowledge of your level of college basketball familiarity. Uh, so I'm I mean, dying to hear uh, where oh, you go with this. I mean, we're talking like contemporary college basketball because I have I have no uh, familiarity at all, other than what I hear on sports podcasts. Like I know that Gonzaga yes. is the team to beat this year, although they are often, uh, you know. At, in the tournament, they they make it to the end. And have they actually won a title? Or they, they have not. They always come up short. Yes. The knock on them is that they're in a weak division. Yeah. And uh, once they get in the tournament, competition is too stiff. They can't win five. That's kind of an IndyCast in sort of thing, you know, to be like a band that just never can quite reach the top. Lots of potential. Yeah. But yeah, you can't make it to the end. Um, so let's start with the obvious ones first. Yeah. I think that you and I would both agree. Wild Pink, yeah, <laughs> they are a, a consensus number one seed. <laughs> they, let's put them in the uh, they're Florida band, so we'll put them in like the south the, they're east in the southeast, bracket. Yeah, the southeast bracket. Let's say. Can we agree on Gang of Youths? Being, Gang of uh, Youths is like I mean we are talking about like the the soul of indie cast right here. I mean because there's like the soul of indie cast, but there's like the on brand stuff. I think yeah. Gang of Youths is both. Yeah, so they're a number one seed. They're uh, originally from Australia. Dave now lives in England, so yeah. I West. We'll, we'll, yeah. yeah, we'll call it, we'll, let's call Western it the northeast. Bracket. We're gonna call it the west. We say Australia. We're saying England. We'll say we'll, we'll call uh, it the say western Britain, bracket. Yeah. All right, fine. We'll say it in the western bracket. Those are the two obvious ones. I think much like college basketball in twenty twenty two, there's a lot of parody after that. Uh, Astute. The intersection of pop culture and sports. No other podcast is doing that. Wild Pink and Gang of Youths, probably Gonzaga in Arizona this year. Sure. You know, we can <laughs> analogize it to that. Um, after that, I think it breaks down a little bit. I mean, do you have another number one that you think would be an obvious <laughs> consensus? Yeah. So, I mean, again, if we're talking about, like, what's on brand for us, that that opens it wide open. Because, I mean, we get look, Strand of Oaks is, like, the genesis of IndieCast. Like, right. Like Tim once compared us to the Stockton and Malone of music criticism, which was a compliment, but like kind of not really because John Stockton is a Gonzaga grad and he can't go to like their games because he's got extremely problematic anti. It's a limited analogy. It's not. It's not. It's not every aspect of their characters. He's just talking. Carl Malone's like even worse. Well, yeah. Well, you're. I was going to say you're Carl Malone, but I don't know if it's better to be Stockton. Yeah, they're they're both like really awful. Like like their personal section of their Wikipedia is just like a parade of awfulness. But uh, yeah, like Strand of Oaks, I mean, they make songs. They make like Heartland Rock songs from Philadelphia about listening to Smashing Pumpkins. Like that is like the that is like the IndyCast brand right there. So he's in Philadelphia, or he was. He's in Texas yeah. now. So which we'll, even more we'll, so, yeah. We'll, but we'll put him in the eastern bracket. So he's the third number one. The fourth number one, I think. Incubus or Muse? I mean, like. Well, I was going to say Deftones would be in the conversation. Uh, um, War on Drugs are in the conversation. Foxing would okay. be in the conversation. The world is a beautiful place. <laughs> well, this is just like on. This is just like on brand, like me stuff here. Like you know what I just. Well, yeah, that's all on brand for you. You know, I just actually had a flash of inspiration. I know what the, the what the fourth number one seed is. It's Saint Vincent. 
Yeah, it has to be. St. Vincent is the fourth seed. Yeah. For the fourth number one seed, and she is in New York. Yeah. So I guess we'll put her in the Midwest. We'll put sure. her in the Midwest bracket. She'll play in Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's St. Vincent. So we got Wild Pink, Gang of Youths, Strand of Oaks. This could and, have been uh, its entire episode because, like, we got to yeah. talk about, like, how, you know, like, we got, There's like, two of bands. Two of bands. Yeah. Two, two, like, how many of bands are there in the world? And we have two of them in our bracket. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. We got to, like, you know, throw, like, Young Jesus into the Sleeper 5 seed. Yeah. Like, Lana Del Rey is, like, the kind of blue blood number three. Like, you know, the, how UCLA or, like, Kentucky always gets overseeded. I mean, th- th- I get like, I guarantee that if if we've gotten a IndyCast bingo, we will get an IndyCast bracket happening sooner rather than later from our intrepid fans. That'd be fun. Yeah, you know, man, I don't, I can't believe I didn't think of St. Vincent before the show. It seems so obvious to me, and I think she would actually would win the tournament yeah. because this is a show that runs on discourse. St. <laughs> Vincent uh, is. She just gives and gives and gives. Yeah. Arcade Fire, though, coming up in the ranks. I'm excited about that. Well, 1975, we didn't mention oh, 1975. Oh God, yeah, that right there. Oh, man, um, like we 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 could real we could really spend like five episodes hashing this one out. We could, or we could get to the meat of our episode. All right, fine. Which uh, <laughs> you know, we're coming in at just under a half hour. That's not too bad for us. Yeah, getting to the meat. We're. Talking about the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Now, we talked earlier about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, very yeah. polarizing organization. People can't agree on what rock and roll means. Who do you put in? IndyCast Hall of Fame, it couldn't be clearer. Yeah. Clear cut. No, There's no think pieces about why we're ruining ourselves or why we're, why we're irrelevant. People know what this thing yeah. is. We're talking about records that Ian and I love, that we feel like don't get enough credit, conversation, so we're putting them into the discourse. Yeah. We're putting no them into the No dilution of the brand here. It only makes us stronger. So we are each inducting two records into the IndyCast Hall of Fame. I think our audience is dying to know uh, who we're going to be talking about. So why don't you go first? What, what is your first inductee? All right. So um, this is a band called Areogram, and the album is A Story in White. This came out in 2001. Um, they're a Scottish band that was like kind of in the orbit of like Mogwai and Arab Strap and all those bands from Scotland that were kind of getting big in the late nineties. And, you know, just being friends with that kind of band was the sort of thing that could get you a deal on Matador at that point. Um, this is a record that like, I had no real context to understand. I think I bought it because I saw an entertainment review, entertainment weekly review, which, you know, with Entertainment Weekly no longer in print, this sort of thing, you know, RIP to that. Um, so uh, th- this record is one of my favorite examples of what I like to call covert emo ops, <laughs> which is to say that it is a record that is clearly like emo or post-hardcore, but the context of the time ensured that it wasn't seen that way because, you know, it was compared to Mogwai or Godspeed You Black Emperor or these like orchestral Scottish bands. I know Godspeed You Black Emperor isn't Scottish. They aren't. Are they Scottish? I don't know. But uh, no, they're from Montreal. But either way, um, they have like real. They're very like they have very very loud, uh, scathing, screaming parts, but also like really really pretty, uh, quiet like feedback laced parts. And 
you know, if we're going back to uh, a few weeks back where we talked about all music guide, the surprise in the ter- in in the in the realm of surprisingly negative all music guide reviews, they compared this album to Mineral as like a negative thing. Um, but so this record is one that um, I listened to a lot, like in, but it was like sharing CDs paced with like Bleed American and Is This It, like this really weird obscure indie rock record in a time of like super popular. Uh, pop rock and um you know like i would see it every they, they continued to make records that were you know not quite as strong throughout the 2000s and um it would be like a bat signal of sorts i've uh like you know guys from like the world's a beautiful place were super into it i think some of the guys from foxing championed it as well and it kind of fell off the map because it wasn't on streaming um but it also has an another interesting sort of twist to it in that one of the guys in this band ended up uh, starting the band Churches, which is as emblematic of the shift in 2013 from indie rock becoming pop as you could possibly make. Because another guy in that band was in uh, The Twilight Sad, another personal favorite of mine. Um, and their whole deal with Churches was like, yeah, we got tired of playing loud, sad music for people staring at their feet. So we embraced pop. And... Lo and behold, that was the story of indie rock writ large. But um, See, I wonder if that's swinging back. I wonder if those same people now are going to be like, we made pop music for a while, but now we want to make sad music for people. I mean, I feel like I feel like we're moving into that period. Yeah, um, you know the 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 one thing I could say about uh, churches in their to their credit, and it's a band I really still like their first record. Uh, they invited American Football to be an opening act for them in L.A. So. They definitely carry some like emo in their DNA. Um, this, I mean, I don't expect this record to like make some sort of comeback or be this bedrock um, of a new form of emo. But I mean, if this came out today, it would definitely be on like top shelf records or something like that. If you if you like you know more of like the screamy post hardcore stuff combined with like the we're gonna have a song that's just the violin. Um, I like, if you like my recommendation corner stuff, like this is like formative material. So for my, uh, first inductee, uh, I was thinking about our conversation earlier about, uh, the IndieCast bracket, the IndieCast bands. One band that we didn't mention was Deer Hunter. Oh yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot about Deer Hunter on this show. And of course, Deer Hunter, when they were at their peak, which was, really like the late aughts to the early 2010s. Mm-hmm. I know that there's some super fans out there who insist that they never faded away. Uh, I tweeted about this recently that uh, I was hoping for a deer hunter comeback. And a lot of people were saying they never went away. They're still great. And I'm not They've saying they're gone away for three years. <laughs> well, and also I guess I remember the time in the, in the late aughts and early 2010s, like where deer hunter, Every record felt like an event. And not only that, but like there were lots of side projects yes. from Deer Hunter that got a lot of attention. And one of those side projects I want to talk about now, which is Lotus Plaza's Spooky Action at a Distance. Yes. Came out in 2012. And I know that you're excited about this because as you probably remember, Ian, you gave this best new music. I did. For Pitchfork. <laughs> I, I forget that sometimes. And when I 
decided to induct this record into the IndieCast Hall of Fame, I didn't realize that the 10-year anniversary of this album is right on the horizon. It came huh. out in early April, so we're, we're not that far from the anniversary. I don't know if there's going to be any think pieces about this record. I think it's pretty well regarded, especially among people who love Deer Hunter, but I still feel like it's maybe not as remembered as I think it should be. Yeah, I think this is like the peak of its uh, 10-year anniversary cottage industry. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're, we're bringing Lotus Plaza back here on Cast. I have to say that as much as I love Deer Hunter, and especially uh, records like Halcyon Digest and Microcastle, this album is probably the one I listen to the most. Yeah. I think I listen to this album more than any Deer Hunter record, basically because... It's a side project by Lockett Punt. He's the guitar player in the band. For Halcyon Digest, he famously wrote the song Desire Lines, yep. which I have said on occasion is my favorite indie rock song of the 2010s. This record, Spooky Ac- Action at a Distance, it's basically a whole album of Desire Lines or, <laughs> or songs that sound like Desire Lines or right. songs that sound like the last three minutes of Desire Lines where it just drones out on this gorgeous dream pop coda that's what this album is and uh if you are a sucker for that this is really i think one of the great kind of dream pop albums that have come out in the last Mm. 10 years um and it's sad to me because you know as deer hunters become less prolific lotus plaza seems like it's also put been put out to pasture this is the last full-length record that Lockett Punt made under this name. He put out an EP the following year, mm. uh, but there hasn't been a new uh, Lotus Plaza record in a while. And I know I personally would love to hear this come back because it just reminds me of an era in indie rock where Deer Hunter was this group. I guess you know, we've made this comparison before on the show uh, to Big Thief, but I think Big Thief is having a similar moment now like where their albums are very well received in the, in the indie community. And also right. you have members making really great records on the side. You know, the year before Spooky Action at a Distance came out, uh, Bradford Cox, the leader of Deer Hunter, put out a record called Parallax. Ah, Atlas Sound. Yes, with his side project, Atlas Sound, and that's a great record. And there's other great Atlas Sound records. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to say that Spooky Action at a Distance is the pinnacle of this, but it does come near the end of this great period for Deer Hunter. The, The year after... Uh, Spooky Action at, at a Distance came out. You had the album Monomania mm-hmm. by Deer Hunter, which mm-hmm. is a record I like a lot, but to me, it's like the last Deer Hunter record so far that I really, really love. Like Fading Frontier. I read that I best new music as well, huh? Oh, there you go. Um, again, you know, we were talking about how distant 2018 and 2019 feel. 2012 feels like a really long time ago, but this album, I think, really holds up. And it's... A reminder of, again, this great era, I think, in indie rock where Deer Hunter was a really important band and it was coming at the end of that kind of indie rock getting mm-hmm. the attention where it's sort of at the center of the conversation. Yeah, I, it's, it's, I, th- I think each year is more defined by its like number 36 year and year end list album than like it's number four sometimes. And it's like, this is the kind of album that would fill the middle of a year end list. And, you know, I like this album a lot as well. It just, um, I'm struck by how 
Um, unassuming it is, like it doesn't sound like a big deal at all. It's just like Locket Punt is looping pedals and making very pretty dream pop songs where I don't know any of the lyrics to this day, but it just, yeah, it's it's one that I, I find easier to listen to than say like Halcyon Digest, which is like this big, um, you know, cathartic uh, outpouring. And this one's just like, yeah, I feel like it's like, I, I, I see it similar to like the Dive album from that year, let's say, which is, uh, that's a compliment too. So lock it, man. What the fuck are you doing? Yeah, man. I, I'm with you on the unassuming nature of the record, but I, I do think that's part of the charm. Yeah. Along with the songwriting. The songwriting is just great. I mean, they're, they're just really great songs. Strangers, yeah. Eveningness, Remember the Days, Out yeah. of Touch, One Banger After Another. Yeah. Jet Out um, of the Tundra. We, 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 we love us some Lotus Plaza here. Absolutely. So what is your next nominee inductee into the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Yeah, I'm I'm like shocked that like I got to this one before you did. Um so it, it, it's similar to like Aerogram, uh, I believe this one came out in 2001. Um I, I in June I'm flying to Virginia for our uh 20th uh anniversary of you know my 20th college reunion. So after booking that flight I became like nostalgic from for albums uh of that era and i don't know what inspired me to put on pete yorn's music for the morning after um i remember kind of liking that album when it came out like i burnt a copy from the college radio station because we played life on a chain uh and i really like for nancy as well i vaguely remember him being involved in the my, my me myself and irene soundtrack like that was his big break and you know we i think we played strange condition as well which I know this is like a side note, but I just got to bring this up that uh, I remember reading in like 2006, this article in Paste magazine where they had like this ex-con who's like a songwriter. And the first thing out of this person's mouth in this article is is like mocking Pete Yorn's uh, Strange Condition for a Day in Prison. Be- I, I got to read this. It's like, if I hear Pete Yorn equate his strange condition to a day in prison one more time, I swear I'm going to wring his scrawny neck. A day in prison, I bet you he couldn't even survive a night in jail. Um, yeah. Wow. Pete Yorn, notoriously pretty guy. So um, Take him to the woodshed over that line, man. He's like, yeah. uh, well... I guess it's probably true. He probably wouldn't want to go to prison, but you know who does. Yeah, I, I just think it's so sad how like I remember these these extremely minuscule beefs from like Guitar World and like Paste, whereas like I can't remember what happened like two days ago. But anyway, like so, I, I remember like in a few songs, and he kind of like dipped out of the public eye. I think he made a record with Scarlett Johansson once, and I, I just sort of filed that this guy away with like, you know, room for squares or like a Grantley Phillips solo album or like, you know, the really like slick LA parts of Ryan Adams gold or uh, Elliot Smith's figure eight that I'm, that I don't think have aged well. Um, but you know, it was a really nice day outside. I decided, you know, like, I'm just going to give this a spin and holy shit. Like this record is really good. Not only is it like strong as far as the songwriting goes but it sounds super modern i'm shocked at how indie rock it was like great yeah murray's kind of like a pre like a a strokes era pop song like black is almost like interpol but like before interpol like it sounds like you know major label interpol in a good way there's some of that like dreamworks record style like electronic singer songwriter stuff that's always in vogue um 
I feel like this could come out in 2022 and, you know, as like kind of like a rootsy himbo LA version of a, of a polished singer songwriter album. I, I, I'm just, I mean, I feel as if you're going to like hit me off with like Pete, your knowledge about like how his next few records are still pretty good. I was going to say day. I forgot really good album. That's the record after music for the morning after. And then music after music for the morning after he should have called it that he should have kept like building on that song title on that album title. His third record, Nightcrawler, that's another good record. There's a song that was on the Spider-Man soundtrack or of Spider-Man course. 2 soundtrack uh, called Under the Cover. He also covers Splendid Isolation, which is one of my favorite Warren Zevon songs on that record. I remember interviewing Pete Yorn when I, when I uh, was working at my, at my hometown paper in 2002, <laughs> and it was for this record. Classic. And uh, we talked about Bruce Springsteen and Guided by Voices because it was – he said that those were the two biggest influences going into that record. So I was just like, yeah, Pete Yorn, you're my man. Yeah. I love this record. He was on Celebration Rock, RIP. Yeah. So he, he gets the Celebration Rock bump as yeah. well as the IndieCast bump. Sleeper six seed in the IndieCast bracket. Yeah, Pete Yorn. Yeah, this is a record that gets slept on, but it's a really good record. And, and like you say, it, it holds up really yeah. well. Really good. Way like, better look. than like shit from that era. Yeah, good production. It's like pretty mm-hmm. homemade. I think it's him and R. Walt Vincent recorded most of the instruments on that record. So mm-hmm. feels like a little lo-fi, but it has like a big label budget. So it splits the difference there really well. Yeah, yeah. Pete Yorn, Music for the Morning After. I'm proud of you for picking that album. That yes. That is like more of a me pick than a you pick. So I'm, I'm happy about that. My inductee, my last inductee, in this class mm. is I, I can safely say this is one of the most listened to albums of my life. I've listened to this album uh, as much as almost any other record. And it's because it's one of my favorite albums to write to. Huh. Like this album always puts me in a great headspace of just having ideas, being creative, being in a sort of meditative state that you need to be in if you're going to write something for a long period of time. And it's by a group. I don't know where they stand in 2022. I don't know if people remember them or if uh, you know they're still in the conversation or not. But I, I think they should be in the conversation. I'm talking about the French duo Air ah. and their record Talkie Walkie, Ooh. which came out in 2004. Uh, Air, of course, that this is a duo: Nicolas Godin and Jean Benet Dunkel. I'm <laughs> sure I got the pronunciation of both of those exactly correct. Nailed it. Um, they're probably best known for their first record. Came out in 1988. It's called Moon Safari. Um, I think that record's pretty well regarded. They did the soundtrack to Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides. That's a really great record too. I think people know that album. I think after that, knowledge of Air Records falls off a bit. They put out 10,000 Hertz Legend in 2001, which is woof. Like a see, I'm going to defend that record. I think it's like a really interesting. 70s prog rock type record. It, Moon Safari, I think, established a reputation for them mm-hmm. making, this is a term that people used at the time, bachelor pad music, uh-huh. this sort of like retro 60s sounding vibe creating type stuff. Um, whereas with 10,000 Hertz Legend, they were moving in more of a sinister direction. Yeah. A lot of like robot voices on that record. Yeah. Like um, it's an I interesting that record. record that is like, 
seen as underrated because like you know it's not as praised as previous stuff and when i listen i'm like yeah this shit isn't good <laughs> it's no, like it's m83 good. it's m83's junk of its time no way no way it's good record but takiwaki is the record that comes after 10,000 hertz legend mm-hmm. and to me i think it's the best air record uh it's it's less retro it's more mature um it has some of the best sounding keyboard and synth Ooh. sounds i've ever Nigel heard on a Godrich. record Yes, Nigel Godrich, of course, coming in on the co-production. He is a master of instrumental tones. Mm-hmm. I think even beyond the songwriting, which I think is top shelf throughout the record, mm-hmm. this is such a pleasurable record to listen to on headphones. It just feels like your brain being put into a warm bath and being gently massaged by the best masseuse artist who has ever worked on your brain before. It's, yeah. it's so good. But the songs themselves, I think have a real melancholy to them. It's not just about vibe. It's mm-hmm. about setting a tone that, in a lot of ways, I, I wonder to what degree they were influenced by uh, Lost in Translation. Yeah, uh, it's, you can't because, talk about this record without bringing that part up. Because it, it has a similar feel of of melancholy to mm-hmm. that. There's, there's a sense of isolation, I think, in these songs, of, of missing something that's no longer there. Yeah. Um, which... Along with, again, just the beauty of the music and and the loveliness of how everything sounds, that emotional undercurrent really, I think, gives this album an extra dimension that the other air records, as much as I love them, they don't feel quite as deep to me as this record. No. I think that's why I keep returning to it. Mm. And I have to say, just in general, air, you know... For those who don't know this band, I really feel like those first four albums, you know, their 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 output from '98 to 2004, I'll put that up against anyone from that era. I wow. think that's a really strong run. After that, they start to fall off. Yeah, I feel like the records start to get a little samey, maybe a little wallpapery, mm-hmm. you know. After that, but those first four, and there's some, there's like an EP or two in there. Yeah, as well. Premier Symptoms. That's that's one I really like as well. From that's it's like, great. It's too. like pre Moon Safari, right? That was um, like their singles, I think, before yeah. that record. And they Definitely bought that at this at the UVA bookstore. <laughs> so so yeah, Talkie Walkie though. Again, a little under. Uh, I think a little overlooked. When mm. people talk about air, air in general seems a little overlooked. But mm. go back to this album, go back to this band. I think there's a lot of great music yeah. there. I love, I, I like this record a lot too. Um, you know, the production is just fantastic. Like you said, it's like more of like a singer songwriter record than you know, like Moon Safari, which could be a little bit, um, you know, like tied to its era. Um, and yeah, like the thing about like air is that in a lot of ways they are very contemporary because like, what, it, what are they, but they're a vibe band. Um, but at the same time, they are also kind of locked into that, especially with like Lost in Translation. I know that's like a movie that's like quite problematic, uh, in a lot of ways. And so being tied to that sort of like 2004, uh, style of indie rock is, it's a little tough to square that with the current day, but yeah, there. If if Air were like a new band doing exactly the same thing, I think they would be really well regarded, which makes it kind of ironic that they're seen, you know, not really talked about a heck of a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think if you love Beach House, you oh, should yeah. definitely be an Air fan if you aren't already, uh, because they're definitely, I think, laying the groundwork for what Beach House is going to be doing. You know, they don't have a vocalist as striking as Victoria Legrand is, but I think musically speaking, yeah. it's hitting a lot of the same notes uh, just several years uh, before Beach House got together. Mm. So, 
four albums in the IndyCast Hall of Fame. Hopefully no one will bow out. No one's going <laughs> to recuse their nomination. Yeah. I think it's a good class. Yeah, I think it's a good class. Like, Pete Yorn, look, I know you're a humble dude, but, like, just t- take this W. Now reach the part of our episode called Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? I want to talk about an album, like, we talked about the Arcade Fire album, which, uh, or the Arcade Fire song, which has not yet been released. Um, by the time this uh, episode drops, there will be a new Oso Oso album uh, called Sore Thumb coming out. Uh, I do a profile with uh, Jade at um, Stereo Gum, and... We, t- we talk about him uh, gambling on uh, simulated NCA March Madness 2004 mascot games. It's a very, it's a very much uh, intersection of sports and pop culture uh, interview. But um, this record was put together like he recorded a bunch of demos with his cousin and songwriting partner Tavish Maloney. Um, and a month after they were done, uh, Tavish unfortunately passed away at the age of 24. And so what, uh, Jade decided to do was basically put out the album as is like, these are the demos. They've been mixed and mastered by Mike Sapone who did basking in the glow, but it's basically everything that they did during that month in the studio. Um, the influences on this album, he talked about cake and fountains of Wayne. So it's got kind of that late nineties alt rock. Uh, sheen to it but you know still the classic emo power pop songwriting ch- chops that he flexed on unihon mixtape and uh basking in the glow as well um if you like oso oso i think this won't be pleasing but it's also scrappier in a way that's very interesting as well plus it's got like a really uh poignant story to it so uh, i'm excited to see people react to a surprise drop oso oso album yeah, I'm excited to dig into that album. Definitely like the other Oso Oso records. Very easy band to like. Um, I want to plug something that I wrote this week. I did an interview with Dan Behar of Destroyer ahead of the next Destroyer record coming out next week, Labyrinth Itis. And uh, I'll just say, because I'm not going to talk about it next week, I don't think. That's a really great record. Okay. It's in the same vein of the last two Destroyer records. You had Ken in 2017 and you had Had We Met in 2020 working with more like a synthy sound, kind of like a sinister new wave inspired type music. Uh, mm. And he, I think, really reaches the pinnacle of this new phase of his career on this upcoming record next week, Labyrinth Itis. It's probably the most danceable record that Destroyer's ever made. What's it's, the it's, second? What's the second most danceable? Well, Destroyer you know, record? you can probably <laughs> slow dance the kaput. Sure, but uh, it's a very upbeat record. And again, you know, just uh, it's it was funny talking to him because he likened one song to to Rammstein, the uh, famous German industrial act, which is a comparison I think that would only occur to him. But I understand what he means when you listen to the record because there's a real sort of dark edge to like a lot of the synth sounds. Uh, there's a lot of sort of upbeat and in-your-face type beats on the record. And, of course, you have Dan Behar crooning in a very alluring way, writing terrific lyrics that don't quite make sense but put images in your mind that you can't get out. And uh, I really feel like Destroyer, you know, we're at the point now like where the first Destroyer record came out in 96, so over 25 years. And 
I don't think he's made a bad record. I think he's made records that were less successful than others, but he's always doing interesting stuff. He's changed throughout his career. He really has a body of work, I think, that mm-hmm. you could put toe-to-toe with any of the great sort of indie rock legacy acts that we have working right now. And I have to say, too, that Behar, this is the fourth time I've interviewed him, he's like one of my favorite people to talk to. He's super funny. He's very funny. It's funny because we were talking about his image as this curmudgeon. Like right. Pitchfork recently called him Indie Rock's most lovable curmudgeon, which he didn't really take that as a compliment. So we talked about that. But I love talking with him because he has a very dry sense of humor. We, we talked about the Van Morrison COVID album, which is fun. <laughs> uh, all different places. It's a really fun interview, I think. And it's also, I think, uh, a good primer for the album. Uh, before you listen to it, you might want to read his thoughts on it. I think it really sets the stage for what he's doing. Uh, but yeah, always love talking to Behar. Always a pleasure. He was also a Celebration Rock guest, so yeah. got to shout him out for that. he passed the five album test. Absolutely. All and right. he might do it. He might do it in a couple different eras of his career, actually. I think you could look at his uh, like pre-Kaput era and post-Kaput era. Right. And make five album runs in there. You know, Trouble and Dreams might be a curveball. Yeah, a little overlooked. I mean, Rubies. Fuck, I I love the Rubies. Oh, you can't can't say enough good things about Rubies. Um, But yes, please check that out on uprocks.com. It should be up by the time this episode airs. Uh, Thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box.